talking about just kind of like what it means to be a part of this church. We just called it us, right? What it means to be we. And uh, if you have a Bible, where we're going to be today, where we're going to start, we're going to jump around a lot. But if you have a Bible, you want to follow along. Acts 13 is where we're going to start today. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry about it. Uh, I'm going to read everything uh, for us this morning. But Acts 13 is where we're going to be. Last week, we launched this series and we talked about the, the statement we made was we are a Jesus people. And what we meant by that was above everything else, more important than anything else, the, the thing that dictates every other conversation is that we are a people who are about Jesus, about his proclamation, about his worship, about people meeting him and knowing him. And this week, I'm going to give it to you right out front. We're going to talk about this statement we have, um, this value statement we have, that we will do everything apart from sin to reach people for Jesus, to, do, to reach people no one's reaching, we have to um, do things no one's doing, right? And so that's what we're going to talk about today. And to do that, I want to start off with a little pop quiz that you're probably going to get wrong, okay? Unless you are a Bible scholar in, in an incredibly profound way, you're probably going to get it wrong, okay? So, so this is a no-shame place, so let's just all own we're all broken people, and, and we, we can learn some things, right? Okay, so here's my question for you. Okay, um, there's a guy who is credited with writing most of the New Testament. Okay, is that person's name, if you think his name is Saul, raise your hand. Okay, 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 hands down. If you think that person's name is Paul, raise your hand. Okay, hey, here's the good news, okay. Um, in first service, they were all wrong. Here, like two people were right, okay? Let me, let, me, let me ask you this question. Let me ask it this way before I explain the answer to the quiz. How many of you have heard that Saul, and this is okay, okay? Not on you, right? We can blame other people. Isn't that, doesn't that feel better when you can blame other people for your ignorance? We're just, today we're gonna, we're gonna shift blame and we're gonna put it on somebody else's fault, okay? How many of you have heard a story that, um, there was this guy named Saul, he wrote, he met Jesus, and then God changed his name to Paul, and he had a Saul to Paul conversion. Anybody ever heard a story kind of like that? It's okay, raise your hand, you right, right? If you join us online, most people in the room have their hands up. Um, that's, that's, I heard that story most of my life. The only problem is, is that that story is not in here. That story, in fact, in fact, um, if you look at the book of Acts, which is kind of the story that tells of the early church, um, this guy we're talking about gets referred to by two different names. He gets referred to by the name Saul and Paul. So if you raise your hand both times, right, the two people who raise their hand both times, you are right. His name is Saul, and it is also, it is also Paul. And that might not sound like a really profound thing to you. In fact, I, I just want to show you because um, I, I want you to see, because you've probably been told, there's, there's this phenomenon, I should have looked up ahead of time. When you repeat something often enough, you believe it's true, right? Even if it's totally absurd, right? And so we've been told the story often enough that he was Saul and they met Jesus and, and God changed his name and now he's Paul. And we, you know, we talk about Saul to Paul conversions, right? Here's the problem. Let me read to you a little bit from Acts 13. Um, if you have your Bible open um, to there, you can look at verse 9 is, is going to be a good spot. It says this. It's telling the story of the early church. Basically, the second half of the book of Acts is about Saul and his missionary journeys. And it says this. But 
Saul, uh uh-oh, if you don't know the chronology of the book of Acts, this guy has already become a Christian, right? He's already met Jesus. It, it, It says this, but Saul, who was also known as Paul, Saul, who was also known as Paul. If you look back at the beginning of chapter 13, it says this. Now, they, there were at Antioch, in the church there was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and uh, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul... While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, so just in case you think that maybe like they they misnamed him and it was just like some of his buddies called him Saul and some people called him Paul. Look at what God calls him when he speaks to him after he's met Jesus, right? He's a leader in the local church and look at what the Holy Spirit says. The Holy Spirit said to them, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. Now, This may not sound like a really significant deal to be quarrelsome about, but it's unique and unusual for someone to change the way they ask people to refer to him as, because other people still call him Saul and Paul. That's what you see throughout scripture. But here's where we've gotten this story. Um, In Paul's writings, he never once, even though other people call him, and even though when God speaks to him, he says Saul when he speaks to him. Nobody else, Paul, everybody else uses the word Saul and Paul. Paul never once in any of the writers' letters he writes, does he ever refer to himself by the name Saul. And that's a bit curious because it's odd for you to spend your whole life going by one name and then partway through your life just be like, oh, actually, call me something different. I remember um, I went to youth group with a a, a kid, a friend of mine, and uh, his whole life he went by the name Jacob. And then we went to college. Um, I was older than him, and I transferred. We ended up at the same college at one point in time. He'd already kind of had his friend group and stuff like that. And, uh, And there were these people talking about Jack. Like, I don't know who Jack is, but I know who Jacob is, right? Apparently, Jacob was not prestigious enough to be a doctor, right? Uh, Dr. Jack sounds more grown up. But it was weird, it was weird for him his whole life to be going by one name and then all of a sudden decide to change his name and all of a sudden be called Jack. It takes something significant in our life, which is why we've always credited his conversion with why Paul went from being called Saul to being called Paul. But I think it's something different. Uh, In their day, uh, names were incredibly important. They carried weight. They carried symbolism. Our daughter, recently we were um, sitting having breakfast, and and she said, we've had this conversation before, and she said, uh, you know, what's Brooklyn mean? If you don't know, our daughter's name is Brooklyn. And I said, oh, actually, I know. Brooklyn means land of the broken waters. And she looked a little bit confused and said, why'd you name me Brooklyn then? Because it sounded pretty and I knew I could yell it really easily. Like that's, <laughs> that's what we chose. But it's a significant thing for someone to change the way that they refer to themselves. Uh, my, my father-in-law, 
Um, he he um, didn't know a lot about his family, about where he came from. His dad, when he was very young, I think he was two or three years old when his dad passed away. And he'd been told his whole life that his dad passed away from a heart attack. And then one day he was at the uh, library doing what normal people do at the library, reading through the obituaries from the 50s. And he found an obituary for his dad. And it said in the obituary that he died in a single car crash. So it spurred a lot of these kind of questions and there wasn't a lot of family to ask questions. There weren't a lot of family that were interested in answering questions. And so I thought as the, you know, son-in-law that I'd earn some points and I'd do some research and I went to ancestry.com and familytree.com and I did all this research and I was, my, my idea was I'm going to make him this book that will kind of paint a picture of his family and find some nice stories and some old pictures and it'll kind of help fill in some, some gaps about the people he came from. Now, what I found out is uh, my father-in-law's last name is Ward, Jack Ward. Turns out that's not actually his last name. Turns out his actual last name, now legally his last name is Jack Ward, okay, if the IRS is watching. His legal name is Jack Ward. But his great-grandpa changed their name. His name was Jack Hardway. Do you know why he's changed his name? It takes a significant life event to change your name. You know why he changed his name? Because he was an FBI most wanted. Because he was a well-known moonshiner. And people cared about Hardway. They didn't care about Jack Ward. It takes something significant. Uh, the next Christmas, someone got him a T-shirt, and it said, uh, you wouldn't understand. It's a Hardway thing. <laughs> and, I, and it's not like uh, prison time. Like, I don't know what a Hardway thing is. Um, but it takes something significant and important, and it should make us ask the question, why this man who had so much respect and was known, he, he talks about at one point, he says, you know, I was trained by the greatest. I was, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I had all these credentials, this vast resume of significance and important as this man saw. Why would he venture out into the world to be obedient to what God's called him to do and suddenly leave behind the identity he'd spent so much of his life cultivating. I think there's a little bit of a hint to us in Galatians 2. If you have your Bibles, you can turn over to Galatians 2. Galatians 2, um, Paul is talking about kind of unity and, and, and that there are, everybody's welcome into the church, right? And he says this in Galatians 2, verse 7. But on the contrary, seeing that I'd been entrusted, this is Paul talking, with the gospel to the uncircumcised. Just as Peter had been to the circumcised. Verse 8, for he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised effectually worked on me also to the Gentiles. Now, interestingly, um, the other person in the story, Peter, he actually is probably a person who Jesus changed his name. He probably did give him a new name. It's a little unclear in some of the passages, but most people believe that um, Peter actually had a different name before he met Jesus. You, you, maybe you know the story. Um, he, he would have been called Simon. That was his name. And and Jesus asked the disciples, he says, who do the people say that I am? And they you say, you know, some say John the prophet, some say Elijah, some say, um, uh, you know, another prophet or someone important. And, and he says, but who do you say that I am? 
And it says that Simon spoke up and he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And, and Jesus says, and you are Peter and on this rock, which rock and Peter in Greek sound very similar to one another, I will build my church. And from that point on, Peter began to go by the name Peter. Should have given us a little hint of the mission that God had for the church in that moment when he took him and he, and he gave him a new name a name that looked a lot more like the rest of the world that he'd been called to than the Hebrew people he came from. But Paul says this, he says, he says, God's, God's put me on a mission. God's put me, he's, he's, he's given me a job. He's given me a responsibility. And I think this is the root of why Paul went to go by the name Paul for the rest of his, his days because what you may not know is that um, Paul is a Greek name. It's a Greek name. Saul is a Hebrew name. So, so when Saul walks into a room in, the, in, in ancient Near East and he identifies himself as Saul, there's a lot of things that everybody in that room would have known about him. Right? You may not know about this about me, even if this is your first Sunday, um, you, but you may know, you may know, my name's Sean, Right? And what do you think the question is that I get asked every time I tell someone at, you know, a coffee shop or, or to check in, um, you know, and I say, my name's Sean, and they say, oh, well, how do you, how do you spell it, right? Right? Because there's S-H-A-W-N, there's S-E-A-N. If you were um, at our Best Sermon Ever series this summer, one of my former youth pastors uh, goes by the name Sean Moyers, and they spelled it S-H-A-N which I'm still convinced is just his parents don't want to admit that they forgot to put the W on his birth certificate because that's not Sean in any world, right? Right? And, 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 and my answer always is this, like a good Irish boy. Because you, you may not know this about me, but my mom's a first-generation American. Her parents immigrated from Ireland her, her mom's first language, the language that she learned from birth was um, what we often call the Celtic language, not to get too picky or divisive. It's not actually called the Celtic language. Um, it's called Irish, um, which feels weird, but it's like if you were to say, I speak Espanol, like that would be saying Celtic is what they call it in the Irish language, right? Just doesn't matter, but that's for free right there. Now you're smarter, Okay. She grew up in such an impoverished part of Ireland that a language that was almost functionally dead as she grew up as a child was the language she learned, the first language she told me one time. She said she still thinks in Irish. In her mind, she has to think about what she's going to say and then translate it into English, right? Um, which means, you can guess, that my grandparents were um, nearly impossible to understand by anybody that wasn't related to them, right? Like their accent was very thick. Um, uh, and, and you would know some things about me. Knowing, you know, if I told you, you know, hey, my name is Sean Patrick Bitzer, you, you'd know that, like, Irish blood runs through these veins. So, so you know some things. You, you'd know, like, um, I could live off potatoes. Right? You would know. You would know that humanity has tried to exterminate us over and over and over again. But uh, my immune system is stronger than bleach. Right? Like, when, if there is a nuclear fallout, there will be cockroaches and some Irish dudes eating potatoes. Right? <laughs> like, you, you know some things about And when Paul, same thing for Paul. When he would walk into a room, 
You would know some things about him. You would know that he had an immense devotion to this peculiar little nation in the corner of the Mediterranean that nobody seemed to be able to stomp out or get to assimilate into the greater culture. You would know that he was a part of this strange and peculiar people that advocated for one God distinct from all the rest of humanity who declared that there is one God and we know his name. He is the God that we worship and that we worship in Jerusalem, that you would know that he is a a person, um, you know, as it says right there, that he's a circumcised man of faith. And you would know a lot of things about him. And maybe you would even know this man, Saul, who was a great teacher, who was significant and important in the Jewish religion in that day. But he chose, he chose understanding the mission, the assignment that God had for him. He left all that behind. Now, you might be like, (laughs) Sean, a name's not a big deal, right? Like Saul, Paul, it's kind of the same. It's kind of close. Like I remember I took French class, right? I took French class. You had to take on a French name. Do you remember that, right? Maybe you took Spanish or or Mandarin or something, and you have to take on a name that is, and just in case you're curious, there is no French name that's anywhere close to Sean. So I think I was like Juan Cousteau or something like that. It was, right? But for Saul, for him to leave behind the name he'd spent his whole life cultivating, it was a dramatic devotion and commitment to his following of his God. And you may just think, like, you know, it's, it's just, but let me give you some practical things. Um, how many of you, how many of you have ever heard or said, you know, so much we can be grateful for. Jesus is good and his grace is abundant. And, and if you got nothing else to worship for Jesus today, about Jesus today, you can worship because we get to eat bacon. Anybody else? If you haven't, you should. Today, you should be like, because of Jesus' goodness, I get to eat bacon. It's a sign of God's goodness that I get to eat bacon anytime I want. Paul, as Saul, observing the Jewish dietary laws, would not have eaten bacon his whole life. And then when he chose to pursue this calling that God had on him to the uncircumcised, to the Gentiles of the world, leaving behind all of his culture and his national identity and his, and his, and his um, uh, ethnic identity and the culture that had shaped him, he left behind... He left behind the dietary law and he began to eat pork. And now, you, here's what you're thinking. You're thinking... He's better for it. Um, If you think that, you clearly have never raised pigs. Have you ever raised pigs? Pigs are a disgusting animal, right? I bet you will eat half as much pork if you ever raise pigs. They are gross. They will, uh, lots of gross things. They'll make you sick. You're all going about to eat lunch, so I'm going to tell you anyways. They They will eat each other. They will eat anything. After second service, someone, after first service, someone came up to me and they said, oh yeah, one time we found a deer um, and, it, and, and it just died and, and we, we cleaned it all out and then we just threw the bones over the fence to the, cat, to the pigs. And we came back the next day and there were no bones. They are disgusting. Gro- you, you, ever, you ever had a medium rare pork? No? You know why? Because they're infested with diseases. They're a gross animal. And, and Paul, who spent his whole life, this, this may not seem like a significant thing, but we're going to get back around to it. Paul, who spent his whole life in this culture that had told him, this is acceptable, this is okay. He sat down and with a smile on his face, ate an animal that had to make his stomach turn every single time. 
out of his love for the people God had called him to. I remember um, I was reading a book called um, Misreading Scripture Through Western Eyes. It's a really great book. One of the authors is a, was a missionary for a long time in Asia, and he said, you know, short-term groups would always come to visit. They'd come for a week or two, and one of the things that they would do is they would take them out to some of the remote um, places, some of the remote villages, and every time foreigners would come to these remote villages, you know, hospitality is a big thing, they would have a huge celebration. And they'd have all this symbolism wrapped up in it. And, and he'd warn them before they were going. He said, you know, when this happens, do this. When they do this, when they say this thing, this is how you have to respond. Um, anything you eat, you eat all of it and you smile, right? Uh, you, you'd be so offended if you, if you didn't, right? But he said, at the end, they would always have this big feast and they'd have this table all laid out and all the foreigners would eat first. Right? And they would stand around so proud of this, this table of food that they probably had spent weeks getting together and preparing and sacrificed so much to, to provide for these foreigners. And he said that, you know, most time people would come and um, he, he, would, he would go down the table and he'd speak English. And these are some remote villages. Nobody there would speak English. And he would go down and he'd say to the group that was with him, he'd say, you know, um, hey, this is, this is a cow. That, that's okay, right? You can eat that. Um, this is dog. Probably don't want to eat that, right? Uh, this, is, um, this is camel, right? You should try it. It'd be fun. Camel, right? Try, try some camel. And he'd go through it. And, you know, this fruit, it's, it's kind of, it's got a weird texture to it. So if you don't like the texture, then just don't take that, right? And he, he kind of ex- described it to them so that they could get stuff and they would eat everything that they, that they got, well, he had a group of college students come through, and he was kind of particularly irritated with them, you know, as college students can sometimes be. And so he decided he wasn't going to tell them. They just sat down, and they ate, and they ate, and they ate, and they ate. That night, they're back to the place they're staying, and they're kind of debriefing the day, and they're talking about things. And they said, you know, well, what did you think about the feast? And they were like, oh, you know, it's cool, all the colors and the pageantry and all this kind of stuff. And he said, well, what did you think about the food? And they're like, oh, yeah, well, this thing was good, and this one was kind of weird tasting. Um, and, he, and, and one of the guys said, oh, you know, the best thing at the table, the best barbecue I've ever had was that thing that was on the stick. Right? There were all the piles of them on a stick. And he goes, um, that was rat. And he said about half of their faces, just the blood ran out of their face. And this 19-year-old college girl got up out of the building and ran outside and started throwing up a meal she'd eaten six hours before. Right? There was nothing wrong with the rat. Right? Rat is actually incredibly edible and very good for you to eat. But we've gotten so used to a cultural of what is acceptable and what is okay. And, and I want you to see it in even the most minute ways of loving people. Paul was willing to sit down and eat something that had to make his stomach turn. That had to, his whole life he'd been taught was repulsive and gross. And yet because of the devotion of his love for his God and for the people that he came to save. It's what it tells us in 1 Corinthians 9. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19. Let me, let me, let me read it to you. 1 Corinthians 9, 19. Listen, listen to, listen to this, this man who gave up his rights, who gave up his power, who gave up his credentials, who gave up his comfort for people to meet Jesus. He says this in verse 19. 
of 1 Corinthians 9. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all. Listen why. So that I may win more. To the Jews I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews to those who are under the law as under the law. Though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without a law, as, uh, with, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I might, might by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. We will do everything short of sin to reach people for Jesus. This is what Paul's saying. If it means that I have to eat disgusting and gross animals for the rest of my life with a smile so that someone might meet Jesus. If it means that I have to abandon uh, my national and ethnic identity so that some might meet Jesus. If it means that I have to give up on the thing that I spent my whole life curating so that some might meet Jesus. I've become all things to all men so that some might. Paul understood his assignment. Paul understood his job, that God had called him to be uh, an apostle to the Gentiles. We have an assignment. Paul says in another spot, you know, there's, there's times where Paul, um, he goes, you know, sometimes he's uh, with the Jews and he acts as a Jew. And there are other times where he's, um, He's with the um, uh, Gentiles and he acts as Gentile and he eats pork. And sometimes he's, he, he's a tent maker and he works with the blue collar people. And, and sometimes he is up on a hill with the philosophers, right? And in one of those moments in Acts 17, he, he says this. He says, and he being God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their, inhabitation, of their habitation. Here's what that means. Church, Paul was willing to give up everything. In fact, he says at one point, he says, I consider everything as rubbish, disgusting, trash, sewage for the surpassing knowledge of Christ Jesus. I'd give up everything to follow him and to make his name known. Church, we have the same calling on our lives. And it is a great and weighty and hard challenge that God has entrusted to us. But here's the good news I want you to know is God chose you for this moment and for this place. Here's some stats you should know. Um, uh, when I took the job as lead pastor 10 years ago, um, in our community, there were 14 evangelical churches, right? There, there, are some, there are a couple mainline churches. There's a Catholic church, and we're grateful for all those. Um, but there, there's a, there was 14 evangelical churches. On an average Sunday, to give you perspective, my in-laws um, live in the Bible Belt, of the Bible. They live in the belt buckle of the Bible belt, right? They live in a town about our size in Southwest Missouri. Um, there's like 23,000 people in their community. And in their town, there's 14 evangelical churches in our town. My father-in-law will tell you that in his community of 23,000 people, there are over a hundred <laughs> evangelical churches. I remember going to Bible college. I went to Bible college in Missouri and Tennessee at one point, And they would talk about this great missionary field. 
This place that they were challenging people to be church planters and to sell everything, to leave everything they know, to go to this distant and arid spiritual land called the Northwest. <laughs> On an average weekend, th- this morning, this morning, this morning, there, there will be more people per capita in church in Portland proper than there will be in our community. In the numbers I could find, the only place in Oregon that I could find that had less people on average in church on a Sunday morning, and it's not the only metric, it's just, it's a number to look at, right? And it was by like half a percentage point, was Eugene. And let's not quibble about half a percentage point. But God's chose you for this time, for this place. Now, 10 years later, you know how many evangelical churches there are in this town? Our town has grown by about 30% in the last 10 years. Now there are nine. But God chose you for this place. God chose you to be here in this place, in this time. He's called you like he called Paul. And the question to you today is what will you give up? In what ways are you willing to be uncomfortable? Eat food that makes, you, makes your stomach turn. Give up all you've earned and all the credentials you've built up and all the significance and all the rights. In what ways will you give up your comfort and your pleasure so that some might know God's called you, he's called me because he wants to do something in this place, but it will take great, let, let, me, ask you the, let, me, let me ask you this way. I think that probably every single one of us has someone we love that's not following Jesus. Like someone that we love a lot, right? Like maybe it's a child, maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a parent or a cousin or someone you grew up with really close and you love them desperately and they don't know Jesus. Here's my question to you. What would you give up for the rest of your life if you knew you could make a deal with God and you knew that if you gave it up that they would meet Jesus and find life in him? What would be too big a sacrifice? You gave up chocolate for the rest of your life? Would you, would you, would you give up um, all meat for the rest of your life? Would you go to a church that sang songs that you hated for the rest of your life? Would you listen to preaching that bores you for the rest of your life if you knew that that one person would meet Jesus? What would be too great a cost? Church, We live in a community that there have been people all over this nation who've been praying for the men and women who are part of this community, who their sons and daughters, who their spouses, who their parents, who their cousins, who their loved ones live here, and they're desperately pleading with God that we would be the kind of church that would set aside all of our preferences and all of our comforts so that some might know so that some might hear the goodness and grace of mercy of God. We will do everything apart from sin because there is nothing that is too great a cost that others might know Jesus.